0: Thank you so much, Kathleen. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, just got back from vacation, so I'm feeling kind of fresh today. But uh, uh, it's good to be back in the house of the Lord with my church family. And if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. As you've just heard, uh, our scripture for this morning has been read. And uh, as you're turning there, you know, just as the disciples, as we see in this passage, just as the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest— Have you also ever wanted to be the greatest? Have you ever wanted to be great at something? And I think if I'm honest, and if you're honest, I think we all want to be great at something, or at least at some point in our life, we wanted to be great at something. And an example from my own life is uh, whenever I was in high school, I played baseball. And I wasn't the world's greatest baseball player, but I had the opportunity to be on a great team. And in fact, my junior year of high school, our team got fourth place in the state when we thought we were... Destined to win it that year, and we kind of choked in the in the uh, semifinal game and didn't play real well and got fourth place. And then my senior year, we had a great class, uh, a year younger than me that was just had some incredible players in it. And so we lost a few seniors uh, my junior year, but the 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 people coming up, the the guys coming up, were probably better than some of the players that we lost. And so. Um, we, for the most part, had most of our team coming back with the exception of those couple seniors that graduated. And so we were ranked number one in the state preseason. And we lived up to that ranking all year long. We went undefeated in the state of Missouri. Uh, for that year, I say the state of Missouri because we lost one game to a team in Kentucky but uh, that year. But we went undefeated in the state of Missouri and were ranked number one in the state all year long. In fact, we had uh, one, one guy on our team was so good, he hit 23 home runs, in 15 games. I mean, can you imagine that? 23 home runs in 15 games. He was a great high school player, uh, so good he went on to play pro ball for a little while uh, in the major leagues. But, but uh, so we, we, were, we were going to finish what we had started my junior year, and we were planning to win the state championship my senior year. And so we get to the district championship game, and we're playing a team that we had already played twice in the season, and we'd already beaten them probably by 15 or 10 to 15 runs. Uh, both games that we played them, and we were, you know, we were looking at, you know, we're gonna we're gonna crush this team in the in the district championship. We're gonna keep moving, and we're gonna go all the way to state and win it. And somehow, during the course of that game, it was one of those games that our team. Every time we would hit a ball, we would hit it, uh, you know, hard line drive right at somebody, and they would catch it. And every time they would hit a ball, they'd hit a little dribbler through the infield, what you would call a C and I single, where no one was. And somehow, through the course of seven innings, we managed. To lose that game. And all of a sudden, all of our hopes and our dreams of being great and winning the state championship, this was a, a state where there was no double elimination. Once you lose, you're out. And so we, we lost the game and every, everything that went with it. In the course of seven innings, our uh, hopes were crushed. And you know what I learned that day and what I learned through that experience was that anytime we try to be great for our own glory in life, In this world, we'll eventually fail and we'll eventually be disappointed. And, you know, if you think about sports especially, everybody gets old, right? Everybody eventually will fail or their skills will slip, whatever sport it is. Even golf, eventually they get too old to be good, right? And eventually someone better will come along and knock off whoever's at the top. And eventually, if none of those things get you, eventually there's death eventually we all die. And if we're living for our own glory and our own greatness, we can't take any of that with us, and it's empty in the end. And so I want, to, I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, but before we jump into the passage this morning, I want to recap a few things and remind us of a few things that have happened in the previous chapters. We see in chapter 8, Jesus actually tells his disciples about his death and resurrection for the first time. In verses 31 through 33 of chapter 8, we see him, him give his prediction of his death and resurrection. And what happens? We see that Peter questions him, right? He says, wait a second. Like, of course, you know, surely this can't be the case. And what does Jesus say? Jesus tells him, Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. So we see that happens. And then we see that Jesus mentions his death and resurrection again to the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, after the transfiguration in chapter 9. When they're coming down from the mountain, he mentions it a second time to his, his three guys that are in the inner circle that are on the mountain with him. And then last week, I want to remind you that Jesus drives a demon out of a boy who appears to be dead when none of the disciples had the power to do it. And so we have all these things that have happened in the previous chapters that are going to... The reason I'm reminding you of this this morning is because they're going to come into play in this, in this uh, passage this morning. And this last thing that happened, uh, him driving the demon out of the boy that appeared dead, I think was a reminder in between these predictions of his death and resurrection. It was a reminder that Jesus had and can raise people from the dead that he had already risen some people from the dead, but he was making a prediction about himself, but he also just drove out a demon that, from a boy that appeared to be dead. And so before we jump into this section this morning, I want you to think about these things, but also want to pray together. So let's pray as we go to the Lord uh, this morning. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is alive and active, Lord. We thank you that we can be here today to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. And I am unworthy to deliver this message, Lord. I'm a sinner saved only by your grace, Lord. And and so this morning, I pray that you would forgive me of my sin and all unrighteousness and make me a clean vessel to deliver your word to your people, Lord, that it would not be my words, but it would be your words this morning, God, that you would fall. Lord, your Holy Spirit would fall on this place this morning. God, and that we would not just hear you, Lord, but it would move us to action. It would move us to obedience, Lord, and that we would see ourselves for who we really are, and that we would see you for who you really are. And just be at this time, and we just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if we look back at verse 30, what does it say? It says, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he said, and I'm sorry, and he did not want anyone to know about it. So, you know, when you think about this, uh, we see that this, the Jesus's public ministry in Galilee is pretty much over. And this is the beginning leg or the first leg of the journey to the cross in Jerusalem. And so Jesus wants to spend some time with his disciples. And that's why it says that he didn't want anyone to know about it because he didn't want all of the crowds gathering around him, uh, to do all the things that he normally did. This time was reserved for his disciples, for him to teach them and to prepare them for the coming trial of his death that was getting ready to take place. He needed some private time with his disciples to teach them. And that's what we see in this passage. And so in verse 31, it says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. You know, in this passage in verse 31, it just says that he was telling them. But in the parallel passage in the book of Luke, of the same story in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, he actually uses the phrase, let this, in the original language, it's, it's translated, let this sink into your ears. Let this sink into your ears. So obviously the disciples weren't getting it. If that's the actual language that he used, the disciples weren't getting what he was saying the first couple times. And so he he says it another time, but he tells them, let this sink into your ears. We see that he says the Son of Man is to be delivered. And what this, this verb is actually translated into is that it's already occurring. That there were already things set in motion for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of men. There was already plotting and scheming that this wasn't some distant, far-off future event that was going to occur, but this, this was something that was already in process and already beginning to happen. And we see that word delivered there indicates that his death was not an accident. This is important. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a murder. But it was the result of God's divine plan that Jesus willingly gave himself up was going to give himself up in this passage and that's backed up in scripture in Romans 4 25 and eight thirty two as well we see that but obviously no matter what he was saying even if he's telling them you know let this sink into your ears they weren't getting it they weren't they weren't understanding fully and so we see that in verse 32 it says but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him So I think the question has to be now, if we think about this, well, why in the world, after hearing something like Jesus just said, were they afraid to ask him? Why in the world were they afraid to ask him about his death and being killed and rising from the dead? Well, I think there are a few different reasons. Maybe they were afraid of being rebuked, just as Peter was, as we talked about a few minutes earlier, when he questioned Jesus' prediction in in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, right? If you think about it, Peter was one of the inner circle guys. He was one of the leaders of the disciples, and he questions Jesus the first time that he predicts his death, right? And after he does that, what happens? Jesus rebukes him. And so if Peter got rebuked, the other guys are probably thinking, you know what? I already heard him say this earlier. We saw what happened to Peter. Better not ask any questions. So that could be one reason that maybe they didn't want to ask questions, but maybe they were afraid that his explanation would destroy their hopes of an earthly kingdom. We see all throughout scripture evidence the way the disciples are talking and thinking that they still are thinking about an earthly kingdom. They still are thinking that there is a political kingdom that Jesus is going to become the king of, that he is going to be the head of the government, and they're still thinking about their, quote, greatness on this earth and what it's going to look like for them when Jesus becomes King in his earthly kingdom. And so, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, when you, you kind of know the truth about something, but you're kind of in denial and you don't really want to ask because you don't really like the answer that you're going to get. So you don't really want to ask because you don't want to face the truth. Maybe it could have been something like that. Or maybe they were afraid of the details that they would hear about his death. After all, in uh, Matthew's account, the parallel passage that Matthew writes the same story we know Matthew was one of them, but he writes about the, the sorrow that the news that Jesus gives them brings the disciples. So even if they didn't completely understand, we, we know that it at least made them sad to hear this news. And I think knowing that from the book of Matthew, I think it really begs another question. And the other question would be, why in the world would they be sad? They must have been missing something. So what were they missing the fact that they were sad shows us that, that they were missing something. Well, they were obviously missing the resurrection. They were missing what God, what Jesus said about his resurrection right after he talked about being killed. When Christ spoke of his death, he always spoke of his resurrection, which should have taken away grief from the disciples. But even in these circumstances, he gives them hope. And they're still missing it. Isn't that awesome that God, even in the most difficult circumstances, always gives us hope. But so many times, just as the disciples did, so many times we miss the hope that God gives us. Because we're focused on the wrong things. Jesus is a God of hope. So as we transition to the second part of the passage, look at what it says in verse 33 and 34. So they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now these verbs in this original text are not like he asked them one time and they remained silent. One time, The original text is really a verb that is saying that he is continually asking them. He's saying, hey guys, what were you talking about? They remained silent. Come on guys, tell me, what were you talking about? They remained silent. He was continually asking them and they were continually remaining silent. Because they were ashamed of what they were talking about. Even after what Jesus just said about his death and resurrection these disciples immediately began to talk about themselves again. Can you imagine? I mean, does that remind you of anybody? I mean, if I'm being honest, that reminds me of myself. It should remind you of yourself because we're all selfish, right? Compared to Jesus, especially, we always think about ourselves. That's part of our sinful human nature. And that's what they were doing. After What he had just said, they were thinking again about who was the greatest among them. So I think you've got to ask the question, well, other than what I already shared, why in the world would they be thinking about who was the greatest right after Jesus said this? Why were they asking about who was the greatest? I think there's several reasons. This kind of brings back into our background information that we talked about earlier. Uh, We know in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus introduces the idea of the kingdom and who would have the keys to it? So we've already talked about they're thinking more about an earthly kingdom not a spiritual kingdom, right? And so we have uh, him saying this right after Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and, and, and then he mentions to Peter first that he would have the keys to the kingdom. But we see throughout scripture that even though he mentions this first to Peter the keys to the kingdom were not just for Peter they were for all believers and it wasn't an earthly kingdom, it was a spiritual kingdom. And he's talking about this keys to the spiritual kingdom of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the statement that was made was you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So we see that they're thinking about having the keys to the kingdom. This earthly kingdom that they think in their minds is what Jesus is referring to. So maybe that's one of the reasons they were talking about who is the greatest right after Jesus made this prediction of his death and resurrection. But I think also the recent transfiguration comes into play. Because think about it. Jesus picked three guys, Peter, James, and John, to go up the mountain with him to see this amazing thing that took place in the transfiguration. And he left the other disciples behind. Now, can you imagine what these other disciples might have felt like to be left behind and how they might have felt inferior to the other three because they weren't included. You know, it's like when I was in student ministry and I would always hear these stories about how one of the students had a birthday party and everybody else got invited but this one student. And that student got their feelings hurt and it was a big ordeal and, and really uh, severed friendships and relationships. And, and I imagine it to be very similar in this situation that these guys were invited to go but the other ones were left behind. So as much as these disciples might've felt inferior to the three that got to go with Jesus up the mountain, at the same time, the three that were picked to go, could you imagine probably feeling pretty important? You know, that, hey man, I got picked by Jesus to go up on the mountain. And not only did I see something incredible, But Jesus, you know, said to keep it quiet, not to tell anybody. So it's kind of our little secret, you know, we're really in good with Jesus here. So can you imagine what kind of tension this could have caused within the disciples? Maybe that was one of the reasons they were talking about who is the greatest. But we also see that in the previous passage that we studied last week, that Pastor Dan taught on last week, is that Jesus drives a demon out of a boy that appeared dead when none of the other disciples had the power to do so. And you think about that, it probably made them question their ability a little bit, their power, their authority that Jesus had given them. Because after all, they were used to having the power, we see in other passages, to drive out demons and to heal the sick. And all of a sudden, they can't do it. And maybe that causes them to question their greatness. Maybe they were just competing for who was going to take over. This is probably the most harsh one. But maybe they were just competing for who was going to take over after Jesus died. Who's going to be the new leader? How selfish is that? But as I said earlier, I think we can for sure say that one of the reasons that they were talking about who was the greatest right after this prediction, because they were selfish, sinful human beings just like us. Don't hear an amen on that one, do I? They were selfish, sinful human beings just like us. It's hard to, to, to say sometimes, but it's the truth. While Jesus was thinking about making the greatest sacrifice anyone has ever made for another, these men were thinking about who was the greatest among them. You know, this dispute shows us several things. It it really shows us how near the kingdom of God was. They they could sense, even if they didn't understand everything, they could sense that the kingdom was near, that things, things were about to change. But it also shows how unready they are to be qualified to be admitted into the kingdom. And this is more reason for Jesus to teach them and more reason for us today to also be teachable and willing to hear the word of God and and be changed by it. And to understand that we too are selfish sinners just as the disciples. But once again, they were missing something. Because of what they were talking about, it shows that they were missing something. And what Jesus was saying. And once again, they were missing the resurrection. Because if they would have actually caught on and thought about what he was saying about the resurrection. And they would have understood it. And they would have believed it. Then it wouldn't have mattered if any of them were great. Because they would have realized that all that really mattered was that Jesus was great. And he was about to show it through the resurrection. And so Jesus has to sit down and give them a teaching principle and a teaching example. And look at what he says in verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. He gives them the teaching principle. The teaching principle is that you must be last and you must be a servant of all. You notice that Jesus did not condemn their ambition. He didn't say, hey, you shouldn't want to be great, but he redefines their ambition in terms of the kingdom of God. He flips it around and says that greatness is linked to service, not control or power. And this word servant actually means to actively serve or follow, which another way to say is to be a minister. To be a servant is to be a minister. That God's kingdom is so different from human societies. In our society today, it says, "Hey, if you want to be great, you got to be first. You got to be the best. You got to be this. You got to be that." But in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says the opposite. If you want to be great, being great in of yourself for your own glory is empty. It's fleeting. It is no good. But being great. For Jesus is what really matters. That we want to exalt the greatness of Jesus Christ with our lives. And to do that, we must be willing to serve. We must be willing to be last. So he gives them this teaching principle, but then he follows it up or backs it up with a teaching example. And look at what he says in verses 36 and 37. Taking a child, he sets him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, "Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me." We know that especially in this society, children were considered the lowest of the society. In fact, the Aramaic word Jesus uses in this passage for child" is the literally the same word that is used for a servant. So it, th- those words are interchangeable. We also see that children are a symbol of innocence and helplessness and vulnerability. You know, a child knows he's a child. He acts like a child. And this is the secret of attracting love and care. Let me give you an illustration. This week, we were on vacation. and The place we were at had some swimming pools. And my son, Logan, is uh, 18 months old today. And so a year and a half, I'm, I'm loving being a dad. And and, and this uh, this week was his first time to wear the little swimmy, floaty things that you put on your arms. Little kids put on their arms. And so we put them on him and we got him out there in the water the first day. And the first day he would not let go of me. I mean, he wanted to be right there with me. You know, he was scared. Anytime he got a little bit far off, he'd start, to you know, go under the water. And, you know, the funny thing was the first couple of days we had to teach him not to drink the chlorine water because he just thought that was like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's water. I'm going to drink it, you know, whatever. And he'd get it in his mouth. So I had to keep him above the water. And, you know, so the first couple days I was, you know, being the dad that's there to protect him and take care of, make sure he didn't get in the water. Well, by the end of the week, he had gotten so good with these little floaties and kicking and staying above the water and knowing to close his mouth when he got close to the water that he started to push me away. Like he wanted to do it alone and he would start crying anytime I was trying to hang on to him. And I got to admit, I mean, I love serving my little boy. I love taking care of him and protecting him and holding him and knowing that he was relying on me and holding on to me tight. And you know, I was a little uh, disappointed at the end of the week when he didn't want my help anymore. You know, and I think the same thing is true a lot of times with being a servant is that when we serve others, when we're there to protect others, when we're there to to love on others and to take care of others, there's joy in that. And so not only is is, you know, service about The the secret to service uh, is being last and being a servant, but there's actually joy in it. And that's another secret is that the joy of the Christian life is actually found in serving, not being first. And that rang true in my life this week as I was taking care of my little boy. But I think it's also a picture of God's love for us, that God wants us to rely on him. God is pleased when we cling to him and we don't let go of him and And because he knows that when we begin to let go of him, that we're going to drown. We're going to be destroyed. And he wants us to to trust him. And just as he served us, he wants us to serve others because he knows there's joy in it. Even the little children. We also see the the child represents a helpless person, especially a humble believer, a disciple is to receive. So not only are we to receive unbelievers and to serve unbelievers, but we're also to, re- to receive and serve each other, fellow believers. And we see that to accept the outcast and the oppressed is a way of accepting both Jesus and God. So greatness in the kingdom consists not of position, but of ministry. And the disciples needed to learn this lesson before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead because it was going to be the foundational principle of their ministry as disciples after his death to serve others and to be willing to be last even to the point of death as Jesus was about to model. Because the disciples continued to miss the predicted resurrection, they also missed the fact that he is actually, Jesus Christ is actually the one who is the greatest. Amen? Jesus is about to model this principle by going to the cross and dying a horrible death to show that he is the greatest, that he is the ultimate servant, and he is going to put himself last for you and for me and for the disciples and for all the sinners of the world. He didn't just say it, but he showed it. And so this morning, as we get ready to close, I want to read some scripture over you this morning about the greatness of Jesus Christ in Scripture. Sometimes we just need to hear the Word of God that speaks for itself and to hear how great Jesus Christ truly is. We see in John chapter 1, the deity of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so we first see that Jesus Christ is the greatest because he is God. He has existed from the beginning of time. We see Christ's example In Philippians chapter 2, that being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every tongue, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We see that Jesus is the greatest because of what he did for us. He died on the cross and rose again, conquering sin, death, and hell. We see the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. We see here that Jesus is the greatest because everything in the world was created by him and for him. He is first in all things. Then we see the supremacy of God in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the world, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is the greatest because he is supreme over all things. And then finally, we see a great multitude from every nation in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12. Look at what it says. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Jesus will be worshiped eternally as King of kings and Lord of lords because he is the greatest. Amen? And we see that all throughout scripture. And so this morning, the question becomes, are you in your own life trying to be the greatest? but what the world says it requires to be great. In whatever area or field or talent or ability that is, are you living your life to make sure that your life shows the world that Jesus Christ is the greatest? How are you living your life this morning? You know, the question really is, do we really believe that Jesus is the greatest. Do we really believe that he is the greatest in our church? Do we really believe that he is great enough to bring us whoever God has for us to be our next lead pastor? But do we also believe that he is great enough that in the meantime, he can do whatever he wants without a next lead pastor? Do we really believe that? Or are we just waiting for a man to save us? When we already have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is the greatest that can do anything. And I'm convinced as much as it is, as good as it is to have a leader and to have a lead pastor, I think what God is after even more is a group of body of believers, a group of people that are completely sold out to him, that completely believe in his greatness so much that they're willing to follow Jesus Christ wherever he takes us, that they're willing to do anything. They're willing to be obedient and serve and do whatever God has called them to do right now without a leader, without a lead pastor. He is more concerned about that in the heart of the people of the church than who's going to lead this church. Because when we have a group of people that are going and doing now, regardless of whether we have a leader or not, that are not willing to sit and wait and see, but are willing to go and do, that's when God is going to do something great through us in this church. But not only that, in our own lives, do we really believe in our own individual lives that He is truly great? Because if we do, then we should be coming before him in our private life, in our corporate worship time. We should be coming before him with everything that we have and seeking his face because he is the greatest and he can take care of anything that we have going on in our lives. So the invitation this morning is very clear. If you have never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then you can make him the greatest in your life this morning. There's going to be people down here at the front, there's going to be people in the back that would love to pray with you, that would love to show you and talk to you about how to become a believer in Christ, to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Those of you over here that may be on this other side that say, you know what, I've I've received Christ, I know Christ, and I just need to be reminded of his greatness this morning. And I need to remember that he can take care of everything, he can take care of anything that I have going on in my life. And maybe this morning you just need to come to the altar and seek his face again and say, Lord, here I am. You're, you're great. I want to just tell you how great you are once again. And because of your greatness, I want to give you everything in my life. Whatever it is in my life, I want to give it to you. Will you join me this morning in seeking God's face for our church? We've got plenty to play, pray about in our church. We've got plenty to pray about in our personal lives. And if we really believe that Jesus is the greatest... And there's no reason we don't seek Him in our private lives, in the pew where you are this morning. Come to the altar if God leads you to do that. Whatever it is, I encourage you this morning to be obedient. Because when we believe He truly is the greatest, it changes everything about our life. We live for His greatness instead of our own. And as I said earlier, when we live for ourselves, when we live for our own greatness and our own glory, it's empty, it's fleeting. It never lasts. But when we live for the greatness of Jesus Christ, God can use us to do anything that He wants to do. So this morning, as we go into a time of invitation, you just be obedient to the Lord and whatever He says to you. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you so much for just being able to be in your house and worship you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the reminder, Lord, through this passage that none of us are great, none of the disciples are great. Lord, you modeled what greatness looked like for us by dying on the cross, by becoming last for us, for us sinners, God. By being willing to be a servant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Lord, we thank you for that, Lord. And this morning, I pray that you would humble all of our hearts and we would see how many needs we have for our church and our individual lives that we need to always be seeking you and your greatness on, God. And that we would truly see you as great this morning, that everything else would be stripped away, where we're going to lunch, what we're doing this afternoon, whatever it is, God, that everything would be stripped away during this time, and we would be able to focus on your greatness, and that you would be great in our church, and that you would be great in our lives this morning, and we just ask it in Jesus' name.